Oh my goodness. Every, everyone should experience that feeling once in their life. How are y'all doing? Okay, so my name is Yehan Osan Yin, and I'm clearly, based on my like little skip jump, very excited to be here tonight. Um, you can remember my name by going, yay, hand, without the D. Uh, I am your host for this evening. I'm never leaving. I live here now. So welcome to the fifth annual Ampersand Live. If you keep doing that, I'm never gonna leave this stage. <laughs> so um, tonight is put on by this nonprofit organization called Forterra. Yes, yes, this, we would not be here. Thank you. So Forterra is Washington's largest land conservation organization that's dedicated to this region. And they believe, as I do, and as I think most of us here do, in creating a sustainable future one that includes wilderness and farms and forests and clean air and water and livable cities. Their mantra is one that really hits home for me right now. They ask the question, how can land make this place in all of its beautiful complexity better? Now, Forterra is all about land for good. And all of their work is done with, in partnership with fellow nonprofits, communities, and all like the little don not little, you're, you guys are big, you're great. Um, and all of the donors like you and all the people that show up to places like this and to evenings like this. So thank you for being here. Can you give yourselves a round of applause? And keep that going for the Westerlies. And when I think about sense of place, which is a conversation we have in the wilderness a lot, I think about the container that holds the stories. And I think about music. And so the Westerlies are gonna be here tonight helping us hold that container for story and for people and for place. Thank you. <laughs> gonna die. So I was walking my dog in my neighborhood one day, feeling a bit depressed for one reason or another, probably to do with my job or money or, I don't know, the world. <laughs> it was a beautiful, crisp winter day, and yet I was lost in my own head, holding a leash in one hand and my phone in the other, absent-mindedly scrolling through the headlines of the latest national nightmare on Twitter. It was then that I looked down at my dog. I noticed my normally energetic, curious little corgi was mirroring my own posture. Head bowed down, shoulders slumped, looking kind of bored and plodding along at a snail's pace. And immediately I thought, oh no, I don't want you to be sad. So I started skipping and running around. And sure enough, she perked right up, became more animated and lively, 
And we raced through the next five blocks, and half the time it took to trudge through that first interminable block. And the funny thing was, just by pretending to be happy for her sake, I started to feel a little bit better as well. This made me think of how often we do things for the sake of our loved ones that we are not willing to do for ourselves. How our ties and commitments to each other pull us out of our own heads time and time again. As the old saying goes, no person is an island. When we fall into those moments of despair and self-pity, we need our dogs. We need our partners, we need our children, we need our families and our communities, and we in turn need them to need us. We need that sense of responsibility for each other's well-being in order to thrive as individuals. And merely by existing, just by being there, my tiny four-legged friend reminded me of this fact. Uh, so with this simple revelation in mind, I wrote this song. And although the words turned out to be more directly about the relationship between me and my wife, uh, the star of the music video... <laughs> the star of the music video you're about to see is our beloved Corgi, Mochi. She has her own Instagram account, by the way. It's Mochi underscore the underscore Corgi. It's called Walking for Two.
Hello. So, I'm an outdoor sports and landscape photographer, and occasionally I have people tell me I have their dream job. Um, I think that their idea of my job must be that I hike around the mountains, take some pretty pictures, and checks just magically appear in the mail. But just as often, photographers hear comments like this. The easiest way to make money as a photographer is to sell your camera equipment. <laughs> so which is it, feast or famine? I'd argue that both are true. It just depends on when you ask the question. I do get to explore and take photos in some incredibly beautiful places. places. Photographers know now Photographers now need to work harder at promoting their, their, themselves to potential clients. And like it or not, self-promotion as a photographer now means social media. Social media has created a completely new way of earning money as a photographer. With a large enough social media following, it's possible to make a living as a photographer just through sponsored posts on Instagram. And Instagram is where most of that does happen. At around 120,000 followers, I have a fairly modest following on Instagram. And I'm not being modest, that's true. There are, there are people I know who have many multiples of that, and upwards of a million is not uncommon. The National Geographic Instagram account has 92 million followers. I'm a contributor to the National Geographic Travel Fe Instagram account, which has 26 million followers. This is orders of magnitude, bigger exposure than what print media has ever been able to accomplish. This massive exposure of the wilderness on Instagram has been a direct injection of people into the outdoors. Guidebooks have been pointing people towards specific locations for decades. But looking at Instagram is like trying to take a drink from a fire hydrant. It's a deluge of awe-inspiring photos of the wilderness Instagram also has zero entry fee, but without the guardrails of education of the safest and lowest impact way to explore the outdoors. Longtime photo hotspot Mesa Arch was well known before Instagram. This photo was taken about 10 years ago at sunrise and there were three or four other photographers next to me. A photographer friend of mine recently visited here and said he had to arrive three hours before sunrise just to get a spot to shoot because it's become so popular. Or this shot from Colorado last year. There were probably 25 to 30 other photographers standing next to me when I took this. Social media also creates some strange trends in the outdoors. There's steel wool photography, and I'm not gonna explain it, just look it up. It's crazy. Uh, people wearing dresses deep into the wilderness. And of course, hammocks are everywhere. <laughs> I'm happy to report that peak hammock has passed. Influencers are slowly becoming aware of the impact we're having in the wilderness. The unspoken consensus among influencers is that the best option is not to tag locations at all or to be sufficiently vague about the exact location. That's a good start and one that I've adopted myself. But if someone is really motivated, they will figure out where a location is. Case in point. I found this spot at Mount Rainier a few years ago. It wasn't in any guidebook, and I'd only ever seen one photo of it that wasn't on social media. Getting to this spot requires a hike up about 1,200 feet on a trail, scrambling up over a ridge, 
down the other side of the ridge with a scramble, dropping down a steep, loose rock uh, face, and then down a moderate snowfield. My photographer friend, Scott Krantz, who has a huge Instagram following, asked me to share this spot with him. He posted this, he posted this amazing photo from the same location, and of course, lots of people were interested to find out where it was. And Scott has never told anybody, even when he, he's been begged to share a location for a marriage proposal. <laughs> I trust him on that. Fast forward a couple years, and this location is not, while exactly not overrun, is getting visited regularly and by a different type of visitor. I've seen social media photos from here of engagement photos, weddings, and even maternity photos. And of course, everybody has the same right to visit these places. It just shows the impact that social media can have on the wilderness. The Enchantments area of the Cascades has been a popular, has been a popular spot long before social media. But according to the Forest Service, about 19,000 visitors day and overnight visitors um, visited the enchantments in 2009, compared to 50,000 in 2016. That's a two and a half fold increase in seven years. And the Forest Service has stopped, asked people to stop posting photos from the enchantments because they don't want more people to go. And it's hard to blame them because 50,000 people is a ton of people in the wilderness. And that most of those people will visit in a four month period from June to October so it's very crowded. So where do we go from here? Not labeling locations helps, but it's clearly not enough. Each of us need to decide for ourselves what the right solution is. But understand that by posting photos, we are running the risk of ruining the places that we love. So what's my solution? It's been a combination of a few things. I only generally tag locations. I don't post images from some very special locations. And I also encourage followers to exp explore and find their own special places. Here's a caption from a recent uh, post of this photo. The Southwest is so huge that there are still tons of places to be discovered, including this one I'm calling Canyon X. The point here is to get out and do some exploring of your own, find some places, and keep them to yourself. It's not about capturing the same image you saw on Instagram, but finding your own special spot and make your own images. Do that and you'll be creating something new and special that will mean so much more. And of course, you know, I had a lot of people ask me where this spot is. <laughs> Thank you. of broken things. Hating people is like burning down your own house to get rid of a rat. It's a saying about the pointlessness of hating people. But what if it wasn't people you hated? What if you hated your house? And what if it were squirrels that invaded it? Last spring, 
My husband and I sold the house we had lived in for 34 years, the house where we had raised our two daughters. Upon learning that we were selling, people sighed, all those memories. And I would remember how when we bought it, we told ourselves it was a starter house, a fixer-upper, temporary. One day, we would tear it down and build it, up, build it back up again, make it new and shiny and pretty. So we said, in the same tone we used to read, read bedtime stories to our children. But somewhere deep inside our bones, we knew that we were there for the long haul. Because deep inside the bones of the house, its sassy creaks and heckling groans indicated it knew better. The previous owner liked food colors when it came to interior wall paints. Wasabi green for the living room, yam colored for the eating nook, egg yolk for the kitchen, salami for the bedroom. <laughs> Same for the carpets, squash, sun-dried tomatoes, and Kool-Aid. <laughs> the walls are fixable with new paint, and the carpets could be ripped out like the giant hairy bandages they were. <laughs> but the roof, the foundation, the wiring, the plumbing conspired against us, splintering, shredding, scabbing. Our house was disintegrating. We stopped inviting people over. <laughs> we stopped replacing broken things. We made do. The oven broke. Never mind, the stovetop still worked. At least three burners. The dishwasher gave out. No problem, we washed dishes by hand. The water pressure in the kitchen tapered to a trickle. We used fewer plates. <laughs> the furnace died. We bought space heaters and overloaded our circuits. We kept a flashlight handy for trips to the fuse box in the unlit basement. The slow crumbling of the house opened cracks and crevices, invitations to urban wildlife to seek shelter, store provisions, move the hell in. <laughs> like the squirrels that scrabbled and scampered above us, my husband trapped them alive and undamaged in the attic. It was winter, and until the weather warmed and he could safely ascend to the roof to repair the hole where the squirrels had entered, my husband fostered them. <laughs> he became Squirrel Man. <laughs> he bought a roomy cage, draped it with old towels for insulation, and every morning chopped a vitamin-rich breakfast for of fruits and vegetables. <laughs> he assured the captives they would be freed in good time, and within weeks, he released them in the backyard to reclaim their lives. One made a mad dash to the nearest tree. The other paused as if to assess his options, <laughs> then scooted off as well. And though there was no orchestral swell to add drama, it did feel emotive, a born-free kind of moment. 
Maybe these are the memories our friends were referring to when they waxed nostalgic on our behalf. But last spring, as we packed and slowly emptied the house of over 34 years' worth of belongings, we did so without sentiment, without regret. A few days before we were to vacate the house, I got a message from our younger daughter, now 28 and living in rural Ecuador, in a dwelling with few amenities and occasional blackouts, the kind of existence our house had prepared her for. <laughs> she asked me to look under the wobbly tread of the first stair step. She had placed something there when she was a kid, hoping the next kid who lived in the house would find it. It needed rescue, since it was likely that the buyer would tear down the house. So I retrieved it, a cookie tin, and looked inside. There were photographs of her, of us and her older sister, of our cats. There were coins and a grocery receipt. And there was a letter to the future. The envelope dated November 7, 1999, when Anna was 10 years old. It said, do not open until the year 3010. <laughs> Anna gave me permission to unseal it. Wondering herself what she had written almost two decades ago. The letter to the future consisted of Anna's responses to three prompts. The best things in her life, her family, and her cats. Her personal goals for the future, to be a soccer player, a singer, or an actress, because they are all very important things. <laughs> her wishes for the future of the world. For people to stop polluting the planet, and for people to stop killing, hating, and hurting. We're happy to be out of our house of broken things. We're like the squirrels, trapped once, then freed. And now we have that memory that everyone wanted us to have. In that falling apart house, a 10-year-old girl wrote a letter to the future about family and peace and love a letter that resides with us now in our new modern apartment. Good evening. I want to tell you about a geologic oddity near my home in Olympia, the Mima Mounds. Maybe you've heard of them. A few, great. They're uh, protected as a 630-acre state natural area owned by the state. And it's a flat prairie that is covered end to end with hundreds of these earthen mounds. They're between three and seven feet tall resulting in sometimes the nickname the Pimpled Prairie. 
Smart people have been trying to figure out how these mounds came to be for centuries, and yet there's no consensus accepted answer for their origin. Here's a quick rundown of five theories. There are more theories than that, but these are my five favorites. Number one comes from Charles Wilkes, who was a US Naval commander. He came upon the Mima Mounds in 1841. Wilkes surmised they might be remnants of an ancient civilization or Native American burial mounds or eroded temple mounds, which were all fair assumptions because in the Midwest, there are ancient mounds that look like this. There, these are two examples, one from Ohio, one from Illinois. The Wilkes expedition stopped at the Mima Mounds for three days so his crew could open up three mounds. And you know what they found? Dirt and stones. No graves, no bones, no buried treasure. So much for that. Now, Wilkes could have saved himself a lot of trouble if he had consulted the local Chehalis tribe and its members. A Chehalis tribal legend gives us theory number two. This very old story revolves around a character named Thrush who had a reputation for not cleaning herself. Thrush, his in-laws got on her case and threatened to throw her out unless she washed her face. So eventually Thrush washed up and when the drops of water fell from her face, it started to rain and it kept raining for weeks on end. There was a great flood and when the waters finally receded, they left behind waves on the earth, which we now know as the Mima Mounds. Whenever I bring up the Mima Mounds in casual conversation, though, someone always pipes up with the theory that aliens created them. And at uh, some level, that's reasonable, because if you, know, you, you look at the aerial view here, how the mounds are spaced and arranged, nature tends to be random and chaotic, this looks too perfect, doesn't it? Now, for a variation on theory number three, I give you a Seattle artist's solution from a couple years ago, which looks like it might involve alien gophers, which is a good tr transition into theory number four, which is that gophers built the Mima Mounds. Not giant gophers or alien gophers, but these little guys, pocket gophers. The most recent scientific paper about the origin of the Mima Mounds proposes that pocket gophers over many generations built them up. Computer modeling done at San Jose State University said that it could take 500 years to get mounds the size we see today, but those little gophers and their kids and kids and kids could have done it. I'm gonna give the last word though, theory number five, to two geologists from the State Department of Natural Resources. They explain the Mima Mounds as the product of glacial retreat at the end of the last ice age. So conveniently, the mounds are right at the southernmost extent of that massive ice age glacier there. You see that also carved Puget Sound. If you do a cross section of a Mima Mound, on the inside you find just what you would expect a glacier to drop. So the mixture of stones and gravels you see at the inset there, lower left. The rest of this slide uh, strips off the vegetation and reveals the underlying geology using a technology, aerial technology called LIDAR. And here the mounds look less regular than what I showed you before. And you can see, if you look closely, evidence of old water channels. And that 
could have been the runoff from the melting glacier. And now if you look at the pattern some more and think about a snowfield in summer, you know how after many cycles of thawing and freezing and thawing again, the snowfield gets kind of rippled, has low spots and ridges. Now make that a dirty glacial surface, have the stones and dirt roll kind of to the low spots, and then have the temporarily stationary ice melt away. And ta-da, where have we seen this pattern before? This picture is from the far north, but you can see why I'm persuaded. But you don't have to take my word for it, uh, how the magma mounds were created. You can go look for yourself. The preserve is actually a nice place to stretch your legs. It's about midway if you're driving from Seattle to Portland. If you visit on a weekend, a word of warning, you might hear gunfire in the distance. That's from a nearby shooting range. My insider tip is to go on a weekday in May during prairie wildflower season is prime. See you there. Tonight is a celebration of place. This place, the Pacific Northwest, and what we can do to make it even better. But here's the catch. We don't live in a protected bubble. What happens to the planet happens here to us. 50 years ago, people from across the country came together for the first Earth Day and made change happen the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, endangered species. It's time we do again, starting right here in the Pacific Northwest. You, you've just read, I'm sure, about the UN Climate Report, just released. We have a decade to get on top of climate or Mother Nature will take us on. It is truly time to change, past time. We don't, in this last season of hurricanes, will seem like a spring drizzle. The summer forest fires, like a, a afternoon barbecue. Yeah, it is truly a battle for this planet. Mark my words. But it's not time for us to hunker down. It's time for us to stand up and lead. Think about it. A decade ago, a decade ago, smartphones first arrived. And today, well, I just dare any of you to try to get by without one. So a lot can happen in a decade. Now, a lot has to happen. It will take all of us. So vote. Vote on this year's State Climate Initiative, 1631, now. And then, and then, let's take the 50th year anniversary of Earth Day in 2020 and mobilize. 
mobilize and come together like we do in this place when the stakes are high. Show the world that we can make the change to a true and lasting sustainability. It will take all of us. Please join us. Get involved. Get involved like Aji Piper, one of the courageous students that's taking on the federal government to do something about change, do something about climate, suing them in court. So it's going to take all of us, every age, every background. It is going to take all of us. Please visit us online and join us. Thank you very much. Thanks, Gene. Uh, it's a very important message. Um, and now uh, I'd like to say thank you to all of the other contributors that have been here so far. So we can give them a round of applause. And there are some other people that we could not do or have tonight happen unless without their contribution. And they're our sponsors. So we're going to take some time out. And if you clap, I can't stop you, but it will take us a longer time. <laughs> so I'm going to start with our steward sponsor, and that is uh, Uber. Uh, we have our advocate sponsor, Edelman PNW. No, two people are excited about several people. Uh, NBBJ. Pagliacci Pizza, and R.D. Merrill Company. And our supporting sponsors, this is like a high school graduation. <laughs> our supporting sponsors of Mall Foster Olongi, Multicare he uh, Health System, and PCC Natural Markets. Okay, all right, PCC has some folks here. <laughs> and then we have our community sponsors, the Seattle Audubon Society, yeah. Uh, why was that threatening? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and Weber Thompson. Yes. And we cannot make tonight happen without the storytellers, without you, and without our sponsors. Uh, we also have some media partners, KUOW, and the Seattle Channel. Uh, yes. And they will be rebroadcasting tonight's program for those of you that would like to watch it again or like to share the link with some folks. And we also want to thank our in-kind supporters and community sponsors um, or community partners. Uh, they were in the lobby. I'm going to keep nodding until you get that out of your system. Just get it. Just clap. Uh, and so our community partners, they were in the lobby, and they donated all those amazing um, prizes for the drawing. And now, please join me in your favorite round of applause to make their hearts feel like gratitude to say thank you to our sponsors. All right, sometimes I make this mistake of going onto social media. Uh-huh, I see we all make that mistake sometimes. Um, and when I go onto social media, I'm reminded of how much we're hurting. Uh, and it's, it's super clear. And I, and I think like many of you, I'm, I'm often at a loss for what to do and how to begin to heal what ails me. And as Jean said, and as so many of us will say this evening, November 6th, your ballot is in the mail. If it is not, like, call me and I will like hunt that sucker down for you. <laughs> because we have to vote, y'all. 
Um, and uh, Seattle, one of my favorite, yes, vote. Clap for voting. Okay. Uh, and one of my favorite organizations in Seattle, uh, it's called El Centro de la Raza, and they, yeah! And they're in Beacon Hill, and one of the ways that they are showing up for us and for our community and for voting is this Saturday, they're throwing a bring your own ballot party. Uh -huh. It's like that. So bring your ballot, and there will be volunteers who speak Spanish, Korean, Chinese, Vietnamese, Amharic, and Arabic, and they're gonna be there to help you and the people that you love interpret your ballot. So, for more information, go to elcentrodelaraza.org. Thank you. This is a love song. The thing I love about this place is how it can reach out and grab you. That moment when the clouds lift and boom, there's Tahoma, mother of waters, giant, shimmering, consuming the entire horizon. When drizzle carries maple leaves and suddenly I'm wet with August sunshine. The shadow of a bat, ravens muttering over a fogged in campfire and coffee, seeing swallows above Magnuson ponds for the first time in the spring and realizing they've just flown in from South America. It's why the summer choked me up. To read Linda Mapes' account of Telequa, keeping her calf afloat, pushing over a thousand miles through 17 days and nights without relief. I cried, not just for Telequa or her dead calf or the young whale Scarlet who died a few weeks later. I cried for all of us. None of us want to lose the orca or be smothered by August smoke. The problems we face are wicked. They've been a long time in coming, but now we are here. This is an emergency, and it's time we act like it. We've got 10 years, 10 years in the fertility of the orca female who remain, 10 years to make rapid unprecedented, wide-ranging changes in all aspects of society, 
if we're to avoid the worst devastations of climate change. We call this evening ampersand to evoke the spirit and hope of Forterra's work. Forterra's mission is to protect keystone places that are here for a positive future, for nature and for people, for all of us. Tackling our challenges will take all of us from every background, from every viewpoint. My dad, he came from a string of subsistence farmers who worked hard soils in Arkansas with horse and plow. My mom was from a line of loggers and fishermen, livelihoods that were not gentle on this place. When my grandfather, a Norwegian immigrant, lost his fishing boat in the Depression, he moved his family to 19th and Union here in Seattle, where my mom grew up among families from all corners of the earth. As for me, I'm the last child of a rowdy family, always looking to get along. I grew up near Olympia at the end of the Salish Sea, a place called Chatwood, or Black Bear in Lachutzeed. My mom taught me to love our place with her own names. Ice Cream Mountain, the big tree, the ditch, where a small stream and a hedgerow ran. She repaired, reused, composted, recycled. She believed, waste not, want not. My folks were libertarians who minded their own business and would invite you to mind yours, thank you very much. <laughs> Our community voted in Ronald Reagan, but I enrolled at the Evergreen State College. And while there, my alternative lifestyle was staying home living with mom. We're all so connected to each other, to our histories, to our common struggles. I think of a farmer up in Snohomish County, a good friend. We can disagree on politics, but we bonded through our work to save a farm, a love of place, and shared hopes for the future. We are connected to each other, and we are connected to the land, even when we don't know it. Up in the hills, a healthy forest is nourished by the remains of salmon who've swum from sea to spawn and been scattered among the ferns by bears. Those same trees, they fall in the rivers, create pools, spots for salmon to lay their eggs, and log jams where fry can hide as they make their way downstream. That's why we must restore shorelines, save natural areas, and foster fair neighborhoods where we can all live more lightly on the land. If we hope for salmon, and the orca who survive on them to thrive. It's complicated, it's hard, but more often than not, I believe we can succeed if we stick with it, if we listen, if we try, because this is our common ground. Look at our abundance of ingenuity, our collective will for challenge. Look at the beauty and prosperity of our place. The seeming chance connections weaving our lives together, 
a Hmong flower farmer at Pike Place, a third generation logger restoring creeks for salmon, realizing over coffee that I'm working with the children of schoolmates of my mom's, a wolf in the Tianaway, a wolverine on Ingalls Peak, a sunset at Shilshul, or the black knife of an orca slicing the golden light. Once, rounding Village Point with my husband in our 19-foot kayak on a rough spring day, I kid you not, a lummy canoe carved the corner. Everyone startled to a stop, except my terrier. Straining to the bow, nose up, ears flagging in the wind, as if willing us forward, sparking the steersman from the canoe to shout, Go, sea dog! <laughs> as we passed each other, spray flying. Shall we save the orca? Shall we solve for climate change? Shall we hang on to what we love about our place? So the first thing you need to know about me is that I love wood. Trees, timber, all of it. In my free time, I carve wood spoons from sticks and driftwood I pick up on hikes. In architecture school, I was fascinated with how wood as a building material can make a space feel warm. And with this, I designed a conceptual timber high rise that was published in a book called Timber in the City. It may just look like a block of wood, but it's really all about elevating new timber technology. But more on that in a bit. The second thing you need to know about me is that I live in Seattle. I moved here for the city, but also so that I would only be an arm's length away from nature. My office at Methune is located in an old timber pier on the waterfront. And every day I come to work, I'm inspired by the opportunities we have to improve our built environment. The third thing you should know is that I'm the daughter of an immigrant. My mom came here in her 20s from Slovakia. Through her boldness and pursuance of the American dream, I have an opportunity to design for positive change for all people, for our community, and for the planet. I am also an architect, and architects are educated to design with something we call placemaking. We are asked to define cities, neighborhoods, and homes. But in an area as rich as ours is, with beautiful materials and people, I think our responsibility should actually be in placekeeping. We should work with our environment. What brought me here to Seattle was seeing the historic works of local architects John Yeon and Paul Kirk. They designed regional architecture using wood, rock, and light, essentially embracing the natural world to shape our built world. 
Like these modernists, I think that we should all look to the forest for more inspiration. Trees grow towards the sun, and as we design buildings for an ever-densifying city, we should too build upwards. Maybe it's surprising, but building with wood is actually great for our environment. It's a renewable material, which means it's always growing. It's local, it creates jobs in rural timber communities. There's also the feel of wood, the smell of it. Studies have shown how being surrounded by natural materials positively impacts our health. It's called biophilia. Biophilia suggests that there is an instinctive bond between human beings and other living systems. We feel connected to nature when we see exposed natural materials around us, like timber. So we've established that I love wood. Bear with me, I'm about to geek out on it for a minute. There's a new building material that's all the rage in the architectural world these days. When you hear the words, wood construction, what's the first image that comes to mind? It's probably a single family house built with two by fours, or what we call light wood framing. This is great for low rise buildings like single family homes, but when we want to densify our city and build up, this is not a great option. We need heavy duty structural members, and since using whole trees doesn't always work, we invented something we call mass timber. Mass timber glues together waste wood materials and fast-growing small-diameter trees to make engineered timber structural members. Think of it like plywood on steroids. The most buzzworthy of all the mass timber options is a product called cross-laminated timber, or CLT. It's a structural panelized material that is made up of layers of dimensional lumber oriented at right angles to one another. It's kind of like one giant Jenga tower scrunched together. I could go on and on about the benefits of this material, but here is the quick summary. CLT is highly renewable, lightweight, strong, inherently fire resistant, and it performs super well seismically. About a year and a half ago, I worked on a prototype project where we analyzed the feasibility of CLT for student housing. We compared it with other traditional building materials such as concrete and steel. We found that the structure of our timber towers could be carbon neutral or carbon negative over the life of the building. Wood fiber actually pulls carbon out of our environment and stores it after a building is built. In other words, something as simple as choosing the right structural system for a building can reduce our carbon impact on the planet. So all of this, all of this is to say that when a colleague asked if I'd like to work on a community design project that would use CLT in King County on April 2nd this year, I thought it was a belated April Fool's Day joke. It was too good to be true. The project is called Wattagier. It's a five-story, family-focused residential building that will also incorporate space on the ground level for local businesses. The building will pilot the use of CLT prefabricated modules and push the concept of mass timber construction to a whole new efficiency. It is also important to us that the off-site assembled modules use CLT that is manufactured with timber harvested from our local forests. The Wadajir project will be located in Tequila, in an area known as Little Mogadishu, because so many immigrants from Somalia and other East African countries live here. This community is in particular need of housing for families, so we're designing one, two, and three bedroom apartments and taking advantage of our large site to include community gardens as well as outdoor play areas for children. The ground level is devoted to a souk which will be a large light-filled space comprising of many small market stalls that can house everything from accounting services to clothing shops. 
When I think of the souk space, I can't help but think of the other mothers and the women and men who will one day use these spaces for their own businesses to incubate their American dreams. This is Wadajir. In Somali, Wadajir means bonded together. It serves as such a beautiful idea of people bonded together to build strong community. I also can't help but think of the many planks of wood bonded together that will create the building and will help keep our inclusive place in the Pacific Northwest. Thanks. to come here. It's a new place. You, you start all over. Many times when people come as refugees, they're disconnected from the broader community. People like to be at a space where, if they're limited in English, they like to have a space where they can connect people in their language. It's important for people to be able to connect with the community there. We have our own culture, our own businesses, which we want to introduce to the community. But we also need the help of others to achieve that goal to have a place for all those businesses to operate and to continue making America a place for everybody. Now it's time for my story. So as I was putting tonight's uh, slideshow together, I was very excited. And I looked back and was like, oh, that's too many pictures of your dog. So we're going to roll through them very quickly. <laughs> uh, this is my favorite picture of this dog. His name is Garvey. Uh, after Marcus Garvey, who is Jamaica's national hero, it was taken by my friend. Yes, Jamaica. <laughs> it was taken by my friend Jody Ann, and this is the epitome of his personality. Just like, pack all wrong, thermo rest all sideways, and like, happy to be here, friends. <laughs> uh, this is, so Garvey weighs about 60 pounds, and this is, uh, that was a photo of him on my chest. He was always like, I just want to be as close to you as humanly possible. And this is at our favorite place in uh, 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 Seward Park, uh, right off by, uh, um, what is it? It's in Lake Washington. But he always stayed right by my, um, right by my back or right in front of me. And uh, he always was like, I need my anus on your toe at all times. 
And that was his other favorite spot in the circle, right in the little circle, right in front of Yehan. And in real life, he was also there. And this is us in, uh, outside of Portland in a slough. So we spent a lot of time in the wilderness together. And this is one of our favorite spots. And we get back to this. Um, I also picked this because it's just creepy. He just looks like I took a child and put him in a golden doodle costume. Uh, and this is the story, this is uh, the most meaning, one of the most meaningful pictures to me because in the body that I have and the space that I take up and the way that I walk through the world, I'm often met with messaging, direct and indirect, aggressive and passive, that I am not a human being. And uh, as someone who has chosen homelessness or houselessness because I'm a, a wilderness educator who is like either leading rafting trips or leading canoe trips or leading backpacking trips, and as a human being who in this body has often had homelessness or houselessness uh, forced upon them, this is one of the times where we were in a campground waiting for a place to live uh, just south of Seattle. And I adopted Garvey when he was three years old in 2008. And for a good year, he was like, I don't know who you are and I don't actually care. Uh, and he just didn't listen to me. And uh, he, he got one walk a day and he had the most energy I'd ever met, of, like ever seen in any dog I'd ever met. And I started to explore the wilderness around the same time that I adopted him, mostly because I needed him to stop eating things. So we would go on these 14 mile hikes, we would go for paddles, and I was new to the wilderness and I was often alone. And it's a really scary place to be by yourself. But when you uh, live in the worlds that I often live, you, you don't often have a lot of people to go backpacking and, and canoeing with. So I just like kidnapped my dog and would go with him. And as I started to understand what it meant to be in, in, in wild spaces and be in green spaces and, and have some quiet, because as I live in the, the built environment, it, it's very loud and, and there are a lot of things that I don't need to hear about who I am and how I came to be here. And so Garvey helped me and I don't let a lot of people in, but Garvey was just like, so I'm gonna just crack you open and like nuzzle my way into your heart. And I was like, I guess. So uh, 2015, and Garvey went with me everywhere. When we went, um, if I went to a party, because I don't actually like parties, he, he would be in the car, and then when I got back, he would just crawl onto my chest and onto my lap in the driver's seat, and um, we weren't driving, don't worry, I was safe. And he, his heart would beat. And he would help me remember that I, just like Shakespeare's iambic pentameter, am weak, strong, weak, strong, weak, strong, weak, strong. And 2015 was a particularly hard year for me because I was dealing and trying to deal with uh, some trauma that was really close to home. And I wrote a play and I put it up for, it had a four week run at a theater here in Seattle and I was like, well, as a playwright, I'm gonna put my dog on stage with me, of course. And so he would just like roam through the theater as I uh, dealt with the deaths of a, a close friend, dealt with the deaths and the murders of Sandra Bland and Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner, uh, people who looked like me and who held, hold spaces as I did. And I, I, felt my, I felt my own death very close to myself. And so I realized that I was not leaving my house as frequently as I had been. And so I started to say, well, like, you know, Garvey needs to go for a run. Or like Garvey would like to go for a paddle. Or like Garvey would like to go into the woods for a hike. And he was the only reason uh, why I left my house sometimes. And so three weeks into the four-week run, Garvey got really sick. And I looked at him one day and thought, oh, he doesn't, he should not go to the theater anymore. He doesn't have the energy. Um, so I took him to the vet and no one could figure out what was wrong. And I, um, toward the end, I had this mattress topper that I would put on the floor and then he would crawl up on and I would uh, 
I'd unroll my Thermarest mattress and lay next to him and hear his labored breathing and fall asleep looking at that, that gray face and those big brown eyes. And I woke up one morning and looked at him and thought, we don't have a lot of time. And so I got my family and I got the boat and I got my dog. We went to our favorite spot in Lake Washington and where he used to run back and forth between the canoe and the water, he finally just stood there and, and would move his head really slowly from the water back to me. And then I, would, I picked up his body. He, he didn't weigh 60 pounds anymore and I put him in the canoe. And the water that day looked like glass. And I paddled out in this solo canoe to our favorite spot and I turned to face northwest so we could see Seattle. And, and Garvey stood up from his place, looked around, and did the only, made the sound that I can only describe as a, as a puppy purr. He went mmm, And then he curled up in a little ball at my feet and he died. And in this boat, on what felt like the river sticks, I took the longest relationship of my entire life back to the shore to my family. I wrapped his body in a blanket and I took him to the veterinarian's office. And he is now one of the many animals that fertilizes our wonderful Washington apples. Um, <laughs> but in this world where I live the life that I live and I have the story that I have, and where I get the messages that I get, I also have this message from this dog <laughs> that no matter what anyone tries to tell me and what I often and without my own consent repeat to myself, that I am human, that I am a person, and that I have a place. Thank you.
How's everybody doing? I'm trying to get my mic in a less awkward position. Can you hear me okay? Sweet. Um, thank you to the Westerlies for that really beautiful song. Um, I'm nervous, so I'm just going to jump right in. This is dedicated to the late Yoko At. Along with all who believe in love, beauty, and justice. I want to begin by acknowledging that I am a guest on indigenous land. I am grateful for the generosity of the Coast Salish tribes who have stewarded this land since time immemorial. And this is a visual story about America. So I want to start by saying, in my artwork, I often look for a resting place in my mind so I can step away from some of the racial hell that makes America, America. I have found over time that it's actually really important for me to consider indigenous sovereignty because I believe in black liberation. So it means holding the snake in our garden until it swallows its tail because it tells the story its secrets. That is to say, I keep my eye out for the divine most days. So if we think historically and chronologically, the indigenous Holocaust in America is followed by the Holocaust of the black transatlantic slave trades. But I think about this in different ways because I'm an abolitionist. I actually believe we can live in a world without prisons. And I think about that belief in relation to the criminality that allowed white supremacy to try to magically transform indigenous peoples and lands into the doctrine of discovery and black ancestors into commodities. The folk healer Louisa Tisch once wrote, there's prophecy in the bark of a dog. Now dog is God spelled backwards. And I think about that connection because we are standing in a terrifying place, don't you think? So I stand here with you, speaking in a colonizer's tongue with my ancestors' smile still etched on my lips as racist dog whistle lies. I feel what might be intrinsically great but highly overlooked about America is that it is indigenous and black. We are standing in a beautiful but terrifying place with ruthless tender age camps, when trans people are being viciously stripped of human rights, when an alleged rapist sits in the highest office, when a total of two more will be seated on the Supreme Court, when a US journalist has been hacked to bits with a bone saw, as proud boys terrorize those who are queer or non-white, or not white and male more precisely because these fools fear women and all that is self-possessed. And yet I still intend to live in this country as a free black woman. I know its center is indigenous and that knowledge flows me back to what is indigenous to me. Blackness as a state of sovereignty and soul. 
Like the whale of memory that sits at the bottom of the sea, there are blood rights in memory and knowing. When immigrants of color, the unhoused and the incarcerated, look through indigenous and African-American people's history, they know the white colonial project has always functioned in America, not simply as racism, but rather rape, murder, kidnapping, torture, imprisonment. These very things are writ large now in our news cycles. If you are white and have lived your whole life without reckoning with this knowledge, what can I do to encourage you to heal, my love? It is time to tend to these deep wounds in all of us. In its absence, hatred does fester. However, abolitionists know we are never our worst behaviors. If we are gracious enough to be accountable to the pain we have caused, healing remains possible because it is what finally gets us all free. So when they come in the morning with murderous injustices, we know the human spirit of what is both indigenous and black in America will get us safely through this night. That is our chorus, our American freedom song. A postscript. The trees and oceans are our ancestors. They have looked on knowing what they knew in silence and have still provided solace as genocide and slavery unfolded. If my soul becomes a list poem, come hold me. Remind me of the nerves lacing my skin, not simply its color. Remind me that there is red flesh beating underneath the curve of my rib the song it sings holy. With that, God bless. I also want to encourage everyone, and maybe especially for Tara, to consider actively returning lands back into the hands of indigenous people and to communities of color. It is long overdue. my new friend, Davida. We're going to hang out. Just Davida, we're hanging out, FYI. Yeah? All right, cool. I like Davida. No hedarak idwe to the hei sukstapa hitu. Aka kuitota. It's good to be here on Coast Salish land, right, folks? Yeah, they enjoyed it too. They enjoyed it too. Uh -huh. Any uh, Seattle natives in the house? What tribe are you? I'm a native in Seattle, and I'm not a Seattle native. Come on, people, get it together. Uh, says comedian, that's a lie. Uh, I'm here to punish you. Hello, uh, Howie Echohawk, vestige of colonial past. <laughs> the ghost of colonialism, future and present. Uh, I thought we got them all. Nope, still here, how you doing? Uh, um, so, yeah. 
All right. I was told I could come here and, uh, well, first off, people of color in the audience and native people, hello, I love you. Thank you for being here. You're the best. Uh, you're up here on stage with me. Uh, white people, hi. <laughs> I guess you're here too. Um, and so, and we're going to deal, we're going to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I was told I could come here and talk to uh, some white environmentalists. And, well, <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> I wish my grandmother was alive because if I told her that, she would crack up because she's like, what's a white environmentalist? <laughs> like, <laughs> don't you know, white people, you're the ones who ruined the land? <laughs> like, that's oxymoron. Uh, you don't get to ruin the land and then save it, just FYI. That's not how this works. You are not God. Only dog is God, but backwards. Um, so... Yeah, my, uh, let's talk about my grandma. My grandma, Katie, uh, Athabascan woman, matriarchal chief of the Metasta village where I grew up around, uh, up in Alaska. She was a, uh, a, a Native American rights activist, right? She, she went out and she went to the Supreme Court three separate times, I believe, and won to fight for our subsistence fishing and hunting rights as Native people. Yes, you can cheer for that. She's a badass. Um, and... I was asking my mom uh, about her and like, you know, because my grandma Katie is famously would say like, I didn't want to do this, but I had to do it, you know? And, and so I kept on asking like, was there more to that? Why did she have to do it? What was the reasons that like she said? And my mom looked at me and she smiled and she said, she just didn't trust white people. <laughs> She's like, they're like lost children, and they don't know what they're doing. How are they going to fix it? They messed it up. <laughs> and I kind of started cracking up because my grandma, I, can just, my, I remember vividly my grandmother uh, uh, taking in the governor of Alaska, Tony Knowles, uh, at the time. He came down from uh, Anchorage, I believe is where he was living. He came to the village uh, after we had won the last uh, Supreme Court case, and the state of Alaska was going to be able to decide whether or not they wanted to appeal, right? Tony Knowles, Democrat, he came to the village because my grandma invited him, and she treated him like this kid the whole time in like this most loving way, and I truly believe, she's like, look at this lost little white man just down here. He tried to pick up a fish to hold it like for a picture, and he dropped it back in the water, <laughs> and she goes, he must have got a gubernatorial pardon. Hilarious. <laughs> so, Oh, white people, you, you're so fascinating to me because you do have a lot of heart. You want to help, and I, and I appreciate that. I, I spent some time in Standing Rock uh, back when uh, Standing Rock was in the news, yeah. And uh, I was just there for a little while, and when I was there, it was, there were so many Native people. It was like the most people that was ever there at Standing Rock, and there was just Native people from everywhere, and it was like this amazing indigenous camp where everything was, you, you know, the stuff you saw on the news was like violence and terrible things, and that was true, but inside the camp, it was this beautiful place. Like, it was just gorgeous. I wanted to live there. All of us Native people that went there, I could tell you, we wanted to stay there forever. And, uh, you know, after I left for a little while, I had to come back to Seattle, and um, I have many cousins and stuff that stayed there. And the camp changed very quickly, because all once the fever pitch in the media started, all sorts of white environmentalists and white hippies, same thing. Uh, I guess some of them smell better. I don't, I don't know. Is that what it is? <laughs> Hippies don't use like the right kind of deodorant. Some of you understand. Some of you smell bad. All right. Um, so uh, the uh, <laughs> comedian. Uh, and, <laughs> and so they uh, they brought uh, 
all these people in and, and, and lots of, and we needed an influx of people. We called for it, right, at Sandy Rock. But one of the things that they brought was a vestige of colonial past. And they started to colonize the movement. And they started to take charge of things. And uh, at one point, um, uh, some money went missing. And my, camp, my tribe, the Pawnee tribe, they uh, had gone out shopping for the camp. And they'd taken like $2,000 and they brought it back. They brought the receipts. And these, uh, this lovely young white woman, lovely young liberal white woman, little both in integrity and stature, and she came up to, came up to them and said, basically, we think you stole the money. Now, she said that to the, the, uh, the chief of the business council of my tribe. She said that to him. We think you steal the money, stole the money. They talked, they and he basically sent her away, and they found the money later. Imagine that. And what happened the next day is that everybody was mad because things were changing so fast. And they uh, went up to the big part of the camp where everybody meets, and my, my tribe and some of the Sioux leaders had a talk with the whole camp, basically, whoever was there, and saying, things are changing now that you white people are here. You need to understand, we didn't have these problems before you came here. And they went one piece by one piece, and they kept on saying, if you want to fight the black snake, you got to believe us. You have to trust us. And the thing I'm going to leave you on, because I'm a comedian, and sometimes I don't like to tell jokes, uh, but one of the things I'm going to leave you on is my cousin, he said this beautiful thing, and he said, how can you fight the black snake when you are the black snake? Me. Mm -hmm. 
to As I was preparing this presentation, I started out thinking I was going to tell you a story about a magical rainforest and the ghost that inhabits it and protects it. It's a true story, actually. The rainforest is just across the state and a little ways north from here. The ghost is a caribou. But that's not the story I'm going to tell you tonight. You can read about it in this book, The Caribou Rainforest. I highly recommend it. Just about all the images you're going to see tonight are from it. But tonight I want to share a story about grief and hope and about loss and love. I'm a photographer, so much of this story is written into the images here. Since this is a story that's not mine alone to tell, I want to share some messages directly from the humans, wild creatures, forests, waters, and mountains of this place. The Caribou Rainforest is the last inland temperate rainforest on planet Earth. It is still home to every species of plant and animal that lived there when Columbus landed five centuries ago. It is home to the most unique population of caribou anywhere in the world, animals that have adapted to survive off of lichens blown out of the tops of old growth trees. For over 10,000 years, it has been growing since the retreat of the ice. The huge amount of biomass accumulated there has been pulling carbon 
out of the atmosphere since then. It is now home to plants, lichens, animals found nowhere else. Today, we are turning this forest into dimensional lumber, cedar siding, toilet paper, and a graveyard for the creatures that depend on this ecosystem. It is home to dozens of First Nations and tribes, some of whom have treaty rights with the United States and Canada to access their traditional resources on these lands. But much of the rainforest has actually never been ceded to the settler colonial government of Canada and by international law still belongs to the original peoples of this place in its entirety. Here are some of the thoughts of the First Nations and tribes that live in this place and call it home. Gary Aitken Jr., chairman of the Kootenai tribe of Idaho. This land here is very sacred. We were put, on, we were put here to take care of it. That's what we were told by the creator, Huthkana Pika, that this land is here for you to use. As long as you take care of it, it will take care of you. And we do our best to try to keep our part of this covenant. It's our covenant with creator. Chief Roland Wilson of the West Moberly Daniza First Nations. Our elders have told us the caribou were there for us and now we need to be there for the caribou. We're concerned about the caribou because that's something we live on. We sustain ourselves on that. And if that disappears, how much longer before we disappear? They tried assimilation, that didn't work. Now I think it's cultural genocide. They're forcing us off the land. They're forcing the animals off the land so that there's nothing here to call Deniza anymore. We've been here for 10,000 years and we're not going anywhere. We're gonna be here long after the province is done raping and pillaging the resources out of this land and we're the ones gonna be here cleaning up the mess that they've made. Bob Campbell, Sinaiaxed elder, and note here he references the assertion from Canada that his people abandoned their homeland north of the border as justification for declaring the Sinaiaxed extinct. For us to leave of our own free will, happily, that's bizarre. Because did the Stililcha leave happily, the caribou, thousands of them, did they just leave? No, they were murdered, every one of them, and we were murdered. All them Stililcha got wasted just the same as the buffalo. Me and the caribou, we share the same, same rape and destruction. What's the most important to you? Me, my people, or the caribou? Or do both of them go together? What happened to them happened to me. Harley Davis, former chief of the Soto First Nations. I have to ensure that there are caribou here for my grandchildren to see, not just read about in books. Without the animals and without the trees in the forest, our culture could not survive. We need them as much as they need us for protection. Since I set out to this place, to explore this place, the caribou rainforest, my goal has been in part to bring stories of the caribou rainforest back to my community, to you. Most importantly, the stories of those whose voices are seldom heard in the halls of power and influence in our society, but whose voices should be at the center of our conversations whether they speak in English, Tanahas, and Nyaxed, or in a language other than words. None of us are so very different. We all want a safe place to live, the ability to feed ourselves and our families in a relevant cultural context. This is true whether we live for a thousand years rooted on one piece of ground, migrate up and down the mountainsides twice a year, or check our Instagram account compulsively. And what drives all of us at least in our best moments, I would argue, is love. Love of family and community. Today, we in the dominant settler colonial culture of this continent 
are being challenged to expand our understanding of family and community to include more than just our own children, but, our, but the children of all of the members of this planet. There is work to do. Let our love of life, of our relationships, and our place be our guide and our inspiration. If there's one final message that I bring back from this magical place, it is very, very clearly written into the tracks of the caribou and the seedlings of cedar, fir, and spruce. Keep going. Thank you. So one day I got a call from a guy in New York and he'd gotten a call from someone else in New York and they'd been contacted from some people in Seattle and the, they all basically wanted to know if I would be interested in making an animation about Seattle told through one of the five senses and I got to pick which one that would be and I thought, okay, there's sight, smell, sound, taste, touch. I thought, okay, what would be the easiest one to do? <laughs> and I, okay, sight, I think sight. And I thought, what would be the hardest one to do that I should definitely not say that one? And I thought, smell. That would be very hard to do an animation about smell. Don't say smell. Whatever you do, just say sight. And then out of my mouth came smell. I'll do smell. <laughs> And so I thought, well, what, now that I've done this thing and said smell, and now I have to do this, what, uh, who would be the best uh, thing to take us on the smell journey of Seattle? And I thought, hmm, what's the, what's the er Seattle resident, the most fascinating, mysterious, perhaps oldest resident of Seattle? And I thought, the Sasquatch. So we'll watch it now. Deep in the lush, coniferous forests of Washington State, there is a creature waking from its deep and restful hibernation. Under the boughs of western red cedars and Douglas firs, this creature is stirring for the first time in months. She is the most elusive of any mammal in the Pacific Northwest. She is not the spotted leaping squirrel cat or great horned raven, nor is she a wolverine moose or albino elk leader. No, she's the most secretive and understudied of all of them. She is the Sasquatch, and she is hungry. She'll begin following her powerful nose to wherever it takes her. Let's join her, shall we? city of Seattle, a high-tech hub situated snugly in between the rich blue waters of Puget Sound and the lapping shores of Lake Washington. 
She will explore the many different neighborhoods Seattle has to offer, and each of their unique smells. She detects the faint breeze of artists and industry in Georgetown, and the salty fragrance of high tide in West Seattle. She encounters the unforgettable bouquet of fresh crab and salmon at Pike Place Market. unmistakable emanation of chocolate popcorn at the Cinerama. She detects the essence of maritime history and ballad and the pungent odor of a troll under his bridge in Fremont. The perfume of cherry trees on the University of Washington campus. The redolence of youth and energy on Capitol Hill. The spicy essence of ginger beer and the unforgettable toastiness of coffee roasting. She smells the high altitude of the Space Needle and the no altitude of Kharki Park and the fragrance of those trees that call her back home. fragrant boughs of fir and cedar trees. Our Sasquatch thinks fondly on her exciting and odoriferous trip into the city. Good night. with everyone. Thank you. There's my name. Hello, everyone. My name is Azara. Um, I'm a local poet to Seattle. Uh, <laughs> I'm lucky to be born and raised in this beautiful city. Um, I was asked to write a poem um, where I tried to answer the question, what world am I inheriting as a young person? And even though it has its depleted resources, what can I make from it? What am I going to make out of this world? So I'm going to take you on the journey of me answering that question in this poem. Thank you. The first summer, Seattle was cloaked in smog. My hands swung at my sides. Finger butter knives through congested air as I hurried through Cap Hill. I want you to remember the sun, melting push-pop orange and hazy how it stuck out in the hot gray like a vengeful auntie god's gaudy Christmas ornament. I want you to remember that summer, 
how when anyone wore a filter mask, someone always said it looked like Mad Max and how the air quality was just as bad as Asia, like the fires weren't next door to our evergreen, like our ports are not Tetris boards of demanded discarded imports, but still, all across the world, the sunsets leak, spilling their lava lamp red across sore, borderless waters. So when the red sun yawns into the horizon and the forecasts yawn smoke into normal Seattle summers for the next century, suddenly I wake up and there are 25 years until the damage of climate change rears its consequences, irreversible, irreversible for even the most innocent of us, so my hands are in my pockets as I walk down Cap Hill. Optimism, melting push pop red and hazy. In my living memory, there are smogless summers, when the sun was Auntie God's ethereal basketball dribbling through days, varsity bright and gleaming. When we got too hot, we ran through the heavenly arch of, gar heavenly arch of garden hoses and shook like puppies before setting ourselves out to dry, only then to charge into the ocean on a dare like the waves weren't trying to push us back to our mothers. Now, I clutch the old world in my fist like beach glass. I, too, have been rounded soft by the privilege of water. I'm wearing thousands of gallons of it right now, like it's nothing, cast in the tackiness of polyester and cotton from guess where. I thought to be always green and raining was my birthright. But here we are, discarding water itself alongside the skeletons in our settler colonist closets. Did children ask to outgrow oceans? Is it up to us to dig new wells? I bet you too collect memories like purple clamshells, only for them to rot in a jar alone on your windowsill. When asked to write about environmentalism and hope, I tried skipping, it, skipping seasonal nostalgia on a turbulent sea like a wishful stone, but it fell flat and sank. I might not run through garden hoses next summer. Still, I cut a pinhole in my water bill and see the new world trickling into ours. It pricks like dry pine needles, but we can make it festive, a little gaudy if we're lucky. This new world is not as abundant as it used to be, but it is wise, and that's what matters. Trust me, there are new summer bops to be made here, from wind chimes made of fish hooks and storms filtered through bleached factory engines, millions of retired hearts lining the old viaduct, lining an abandoned oil pipeline, the former splitting image of America hollowed into one long flute, snaking through a countryside, sighing one long note, birthright, is no longer synonymous with colonizing every body of water with our garbage while forcing its faucets to run for as long as we please so we walk to the river and it welcomes our shaking knees. I pick up bottle cap hills and the last artifacts of sea glass. I pray for forgiveness 
but never freedom from consequence. Can you hear the next season calling? Can you hear us outgrowing the privilege of our ports in an urgent riptide of growth? Sustainability is a right we earn. We, are no, we no longer demand where resources rightfully run away from us like dogs. This smog brings so many new colors. I can't wait for us to make the best of them. Thank you. That's it. Uh, Y'all have a good time? <laughs> uh, how about another round of applause for all of the performers tonight? Well, let's, let's bring them out. It is uh, it's such a scary thing to stand in front of a thousand people and uh, to, to, to talk. Uh, and I think uh, we, we all did a great job. We did it. Yay. <laughs> Come on. Uh, we have one more treat for you guys. Um, it's, uh, this is a song I wrote, um, and uh, it's called Keep On Moving. And um, that is... Uh, I guess the, the, the message that uh, I'd like everyone to walk out uh, here uh, with, and um, uh, just, just keep on moving. <laughs> Whatever actions you take, um, just keep doing it, you know? And, um, and uh, I'm going to need uh, your help on this. Um, will you help me? Yeah? Okay. All right. So put your hands together. Not too fast. <laughs> yeah, like that. Ready? One, two, one, two, three, four. <laughs> to oceans Love's so strong
We are going to be all right. Good night.